0: From Six Alley, I'm Zach Anderson, these are our stories. This week, we take a look at the beginnings of Asian America, how the diasporas were formed, the reasons people left their homelands, and the adversity they face in a new country. In this first episode of our series arrivals, we will be looking at the Chinese, Japanese, and Filipinos. This is Zhen Yao reading Poem 24, which was carved into the wall of a barracks at the Angel Island Immigration Center. According to the inscription below the poem, it was written by Yu of Taishan, but not much else is known about the author.
1: In the quiet of night, I heard faintly the whistling of wind. The forms and shadows saddened me. Upon seeing the landscape, I composed a poem. The floating clouds, the fog. Darken the sky. The moon shines faintly, as the insects chirp. Grief and bitterness entwined. Our heaven sent. The sad person sits alone, leaning by a window.
0: By the early 19th century, China, once the richest and most powerful nation in the world, was in turmoil. For most of the first half of the 18th century, peasant revolts ravaged the country, the deadliest being the Taiping Rebellion, where an estimated 70 million lives were lost between 1850 and 1864. As a result of an unquenchable thirst for tea, the British East India Company began trading opium in China, sparking a nationwide epidemic of addiction. At its peak, the company was importing more than 1,400 tons of opium a year. When the Qin Dynasty banned the opium trade, a British and French expedition invaded China, triggering the First Opium War. At the same time, flood, starvation and high taxes had made life in the former Middle Kingdom unbearable for its most vulnerable of citizens. Between 1840 and 1900, two and a half million Chinese, mostly peasants from the Pearl River Delta, left their homes to find opportunity elsewhere. From the southern ports of Hong Kong, they left on steamships for Canada, South Africa, the Kingdom of Hawaii, and Gomsan. In 1848, gold was discovered on the banks of the American River in California. And the world rushed in.
2: In the black ball and I serve my time with, with a, a huda with a, a huda in a full rig ship and in her prime with, with a huda huda day. So blow boys blow for California oh.
0: There's plenty of gold so I've been told on the banks of the Sacramento. In the hearts and minds of the first Chinese immigrants, California was not only a land of riches, but also unlimited opportunity. In addition to rumors of Gum San or Gold Mountain. Rumors of rich Americans in need of labor also made its way to China. Joining the peasants in pursuit of gold were merchants who traveled to the US to set up stores that could cater to Chinese appetites and needs. These stores formed the basis for many of the Chinatowns across the country that would define the diaspora for the next 150 years. Unfortunately for many, gold prospecting did not yield the riches they desired. After the gold rush ended, some found work elsewhere in the sugar plantations of Hawaii or as laundry attendants in big cities like San Francisco. Still, others went further east to Nevada, where silver was discovered in 1858. In 1865, 50 Chinese workers in Sacramento were hired to lay track and begin construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. It was by no means easy work. In addition to laying track, the Chinese also had to clear forests and blast tunnels into the sides of mountains and granite cliffs. By 1866, fearing that they would not meet their deadline, the railroad ordered that work would continue through the winter in the Sierra Nevada mountains exposing the chinese workers to the elements snowfalls would occasionally engulf entire camps of workers and force them to find shelter in tunnels which were still under construction the bodies of those lost in the sierra nevada were found only after the arrival of spring when the snow thawed one foreman reported that the workers were still standing gripping their tools frozen That spring, 5,000 Chinese workers went on strike to demand better wages and working conditions. But they were soon defeated after the railroad cut off their supply chain. By 1870, 63,000 Chinese lived in the U.S., with 77% of them in California. Before the railroad, many of them lived in California's mining country, but soon after its completion, they flocked back to the cities and their Chinatowns. Most went to San Francisco, or Daifao, the big city. Others remained in Sacramento, Yifao, the second city, and others went to smaller cities, Stockton, Marysville, Oakland, and Los Angeles. In the cities, Chinese found work in an emerging manufacturing industry, while those in the Sacramento, the San Joaquin, and Napa Valleys, worked clearing the land to make California the breadbasket it is known for today. Regardless of where they were, all were paid meager wages compared to their white counterparts. The average annual wage for a Chinese garment worker was $364, while a white garment worker made 597. During this time, the Chinese diaspora in America was mainly made up of men. Many of them were married with intentions to move their families to America after saving enough money or moving back to China. But in 1882, The Chinese Exclusion Act was made law, halting future immigration from China, and effectively barring the wives of the Chinese workers from ever entering the country. But despite the doors that closed them off from the only home they ever knew, the Chinese worked to make Chinatowns resemble home as much as possible. Alongside the stores, opera houses also opened, as well as saloons and gambling houses. Some opened restaurants, like Sam Woo in San Francisco, and the Peking Noodle Parlor in Butte, Montana. <laughs> Chinese restaurants represented some of the earliest examples of fusion cuisine. White patrons would come in believing they were eating authentic food from an exotic country, when in reality, Chinese chefs had adapted recipes from home to better suit American palates. This resulted in dishes that today are mainstays of Chinese takeout. Chop suey, beef and broccoli, General Tso's chicken, and fortune cookies, which actually may have come from Japan with no Chinese origins whatsoever. Despite their best efforts, the Chinese were still viewed as threats to the American way of life. In 1871 Los Angeles, a mob of 500 whites and Hispanics stormed Chinatown. 19 people were killed, 15 of whom were lynched by the mob. In the end, Gamsam was not real. And it turned out that California was a land heavily reliant on Chinese labor that also had no intention of ever making them feel welcome. This is an excerpt from The Buddha in the Attic by Juliatsuka, read by Subinan. Home
1: was a cot in one of their bunk houses at the fair Renciagnolo. Home was a long tent beneath a leafy plum tree at Cattleman's. Home was a wooden shanty in Camp Number no. 7 on the Barnhart Track out in Lodi. Nothing but rows of onions as far as the eye can see. Home was a bed of straw in John Lemon's barn, alongside his prized horses and cows. Home was a corner of the wash house at Stockton's Cannery Ranch. Home was a bunk in a rusty boxcar in Lompoc. Home was an old chicken coop in willows that the Chinese had lived in before us. Home was a flea ridden mattress in a corner of a packing shed in Dixon. Home was a bed of hay atop three apple crates beneath an apple tree in Fred Stettleman's apple orchard. Home was a spot on the floor of an abandoned schoolhouse in Marysville. Home was a patch of earth in a pear orchard in Auburn, not far from the banks of the American River, where we lay awake every evening staring up at the American stars, which looked no different from ours.
0: Since the 1600s, the shogun in Edo ruled Japan in isolation from the rest of the world. Aside from a few exceptions, no outsider was permitted to come into the country, and in 1653, Japanese citizens were barred from leaving. Then in 1853, the American Commodore Matthew Perry sailed into Edo Bay to intimidate the shogun into opening Japan to the world. Fifteen years later, the shogun relinquished his power to the emperor, marking the beginning of the Meiji Restoration and the rapid westernization of the Land of the Rising Sun. Japan's victory over China during the First Sino-Japanese War resulted in China handing over control of both Korea and Taiwan to the emerging empire, further signaling to the world its aspirations to be a powerful industrial nation in the region. In 1905, these aspirations were met after Japan's victory over Russia in the Russo-Japanese War. In order to pay for a large military modern enough to fight these wars, Japan instated more taxes on landowning farmers. But the Japanese government also imposed a low price for rice, which made it difficult for the farmers to both pay the taxes and support themselves. More than 300,000 people lost their lands because of this. In search for opportunities to make enough money to pay off their debts and buy back their land, Japanese farmers started to emigrate to work in the sugar plantations of Hawaii, which by 1900 was now an American territory. To the west coast of the united states where labor was needed in the canneries and farms of california and washington between 1885 and 1924 380,000 japanese immigrated to hawaii and the u.s mainland unlike the chinese however they were leaving a country with a strong centralized government perhaps inadvertently the mejai restoration made japanese immigrants to the u.s more educated and financially secure than the average european immigrant japanese law made schooling mandatory which resulted in Japanese immigrants having higher levels of literacy than Europeans. And despite the debilitating taxes imposed on them, Japanese farmers were not desperately poor. In fact, most of them arrived to the U.S. with more money than the Chinese or Europeans did. But the Japanese government also had control over who could leave. Government officials believed that the Japanese diaspora in America were representatives of their homeland, and that the so-called bad reputation of Chinese immigrants caused the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Those who wished to leave Japan had to first apply for permission to do so. So, despite the hundreds of thousands who did leave, there were most likely hundreds of thousands more who were denied that opportunity. Despite the government's best efforts, however, the Japanese still faced the same prejudices as the Chinese. To prevent their own exclusionary laws, the Japanese government negotiated an informal agreement with the U.S. to limit immigration of laborers. But in this agreement, the wives and families of Japanese already in the U.S. were allowed, resulting in another wave of immigration made up mostly of women. (laughs) The most dramatic change to Japanese society during the Meiji period happened to women. Mandatory education was provided to both girls and boys, as the emperor desired that all Japanese youth be enlightened to the ideas of the world. But most of all, in an agricultural society that was rapidly industrializing, women found themselves as part of the labor force in tea processing plants and textile mills. By 1900, they made up 60% of Japan's industrial workforce. Coupled with this newfound agency and the government's encouragement to go abroad, Japanese women took advantage of the loophole that barred their male counterparts, but not them. As a means to leave Japan, families used the picture bride system, where matchmakers acted as middlemen in the exchange of photos between Japanese men abroad and potential brides at home, where their marriage ceremony would take place when their name was added to their husband's family tree. For many picture brides, they did not meet their husbands until they had arrived some men use photos of their more handsome friends or older photos from when they first arrived in their late teens or early 20s regardless the picture brides were now in a strange new country bonded for life with a complete stranger contrary to popular belief however it's important to note that most soon-to-be picture brides were not sold by their families and bought by their husbands many in fact consented to these arranged marriages seeing them more as an opportunity to experience a new place and perhaps even find upward mobility don't get me wrong There were instances of forced marriage, and the arrangement was not perfect. However, to understand that these women had a degree of choice in this matter is important not only to understanding the origins of the Japanese diaspora, but also to assuring that their voices have equal setting in that narrative. From 1908 to 1924, 64,000 Japanese women immigrated to the US, and by 1920, half of Hawaii's Japanese community was female. Prejudice kept skilled workers from continuing their trade in America, and many turned to service jobs or migrant work in the fields and canneries. But those who had come to America with money, or had married a woman with a large dowry, were able to open their own businesses as farmers or as hoteliers or other enterprises in the cities, the predecessors of the little Tokyos and (laughs) Japantowns. In 1909, there were 3,000 Japanese-owned businesses in the western U.S. Most of them were small and family-owned, while others grew into massive corporate conglomerates like the Furuya Company of the Pacific Northwest. Founded by Masahiro Furuya, it started off as a small tailor shop in Seattle and soon became a multi-branch department store as well as a post office and bank. Furuya was the most prominent businessman in Seattle until the Great Depression. Despite the unique place Japanese immigrants occupied in American society, despite all their achievements, they could not match the powers of xenophobia and white supremacy. Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1924, which barred immigration not only from Japan, but from the entirety of Asia. For cheap labor persisted. The railroad and the invention of the refrigerated car had opened West Coast food producers to the growing markets of the East Coast. White labor was fleeing to cities to find work in factories. With the country's steady source of laborers officially cut off, they looked elsewhere to territory acquired by victory during the Spanish American War. <laughs> <laughs> This is Benicio kayab reading an excerpt from America's in the Heart by Carlos Balusa. My first sight of the approaching land was an exhilarating experience. Everything seemed native and promising to me. It was like coming home after a long voyage, although as yet I had no home in this city. Everything seemed familiar and kind the white faces of the buildings melting softly into the afternoon sun. The gray contours of the surrounding valleys that seemed to vanish in the last periphery of light. With the sudden surge of joy, I knew that I must find a home
2: in this new land.
0: As the result of over 500 years of colonization, first by the Spanish and then by the Americans, Filipinos were more familiar with the West than either the Chinese or the Japanese. took control of the Philippines from the Spanish. They established schools to educate Filipino children from the dense cities of Manila to the rural farming villages of Mindanao. In these schools, the young Pinoys read from textbooks written in English, said the Pledge of Allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, and were taught about how their new colonizers came from a land ruled by life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when hard times came, it was no wonder why so many of them sought opportunity in America. In 1930, there were 40,000 Filipinos in the U.S., compared to only 5,600 ten years earlier. And though Filipinos could be found in every state from Michigan to Mississippi, most of them settled in California.
2: California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it
0: so hot if you ain't got the do me In 1910, there were only five Filipinos in California. By 1930, there were 30,500. Most of them entered through San Francisco, but they seldom stayed in the city for long. For the most part, Stockton was the central hub of Filipino labor, and it was from there that laborers dispersed to seasonal work either in the fields and orchards of the Central Valley or the canneries of Alaska, where the work season lasted for seven months. In comparison, the California harvest seasons were shorter, but as a result, workers moved with the seasons. Though Filipinos picked a large variety of crops, including lettuce, grapes, tomatoes, and cotton, farmers believed in racist claims that their height made Filipinos best suited for stoop labor in the asparagus fields. During asparagus season, the workday began at four in the morning. In those early hours, laborers tied flashlights to their hats to help them see while they cut grass, as the work was called. In the mornings, the thick tule fog of the Central Valley turned the fields muddy, which caked their boots as they trudged from one row to the next. When the sun came up and made the day hot, the mud turned into dust that clogged the pores of laborers and caused unbearable itching. To keep the dust out of their boots, they tied their shoelaces around their pants. But when the workday ended at 6 p.m. and the laborers returned to the work camps, there would still be an inch of dirt inside their boots. After a long day of hard work, the Filipinos waited in line to bathe themselves, one bathtub per 100 workers. At night, they slept restlessly, their bodies aching and cramping as a result of the stoop work. The majority of Filipinos coming during the 20s and 30s were young men in their teens and 20s. They had come from poor backgrounds where they might not have been making money at all. And at the same time, the consumer culture is blossoming in America with advertisements and movies displaying lavish and luxurious lifestyles. So when the first Filipinos earned their first paychecks from migrant work, a lot of them were spending it on leisure. In Stockton during asparagus season, the streets were filled with young Pinoys dressed to the nines in fine suits. Most white businesses refused to serve them, so Filipinos headed to the city's Oriental Quarter, where they spent their week's pay on saloons and gambling halls. They also went to social clubs, which hosted taxi dances, where a dozen or so women, mostly white, were hired by the club to dance with the men who paid for 5-10 to ten minutes of their time. Taxi dance has also revealed a unique aspect of the early Filipino diaspora. Traditional Catholic values and the fact that migrant work was not an ideal situation for families meant that Filipino women were discouraged from immigrating. In the first half of the 20th century, there were 14 men for every Filipina. One immigrant remembered that because the number of Filipino women was so scarce, they were all considered queens no matter their looks or age, unlike the other Asians who came Filipinos were also much more confident when it came to courting non-Filipino women. Despite interracial marriage being outlawed in most states, quite a few Filipino men married white and Mexican women and started families, creating a generation of mixed children called mulattoes.
2: I'm going where there's no depression, to the lovely land
0: that's free from care. Tensions escalated in the 1930s as thousands of mostly white refugees called Okies fled the ravages of the Dust Bowl for California. But when they arrived, they discovered that farmers preferred to hire Mexicans and Filipinos who they made work longer hours for less pay. These two elements incited a lot of resentment among the whites, who couldn't believe that these young Filipino guys had the gall to date those they considered their women and work what they considered their jobs. Whites began to view Filipinos as a threat not only to the labor market but to racial purity and sought to find a way to teach them a lesson. In 1929, Watsonville, California, police arrest a Filipino teenager after seeing him with a white girl. He was released after the girl's parents had explained that he was engaged to their daughter. A local newspaper published the photo of the couple embracing with the story, which triggered a white mob to attack the town's Filipinos in what is known as the Watsonville riots. For five days, the mob attacked Filipinos in Watsonville and the surrounding labor camps. On Ford Street, shots were fired into a house, which killed one of the 11 people hiding inside. In response to the Watsonville riots, a Baltimore newspaper remarked, perhaps satirically, the Filipinos got in trouble at Watsonville because they danced better and spent their money more lavishly than their Nordic fellow farmhands, and therefore appealed more than some of the latter to the local girls. In 1934, the Tidings McDuffie Act was passed, which made the Philippines a commonwealth, with the possibility of independence within 10 years. And though the Philippines gained more control over itself, in reality, this was a backdoor that would enable Congress to create more exclusionary laws. After its passage, Filipino immigration to the mainland was limited to 50 a year. In 1935, Congress passed the Filipino Repatriation Act, which provided subsidies for one-way travel back to the Philippines. Disillusioned by the promises told to them by American teachers, more than 2000 Filipinos went back to the islands. Even though tens of thousands remained in the US, the message these laws sent were pretty clear. Filipinos were not welcome in America. Fed up with their treatment, Filipino farm workers organized into unions to protect and promote their interests. In 1939, Filipino labor leaders organized the Stockton asparagus strikes to demand better wages for workers. The strike was so successful, all but two growers gave in to their demands. One of the strikers was Larry Itliong, who, alongside Philip Vera Cruz and other Filipino and Mexican labor leaders, would lead a 1965 strike in Delano, which sparked the largest labor struggle in American history. <inaudible> Después de
2: los hermanos para unirse a la batalla salieron los mexicanos y juntos vamos cumpliendo con la marcha de la historia para liberar pueblo viva la revolución
0: viva nuestra asociación viva huelga, en
2: ¡Viva
0: la huelga en el... I'm going to shortchange that story for another episode For now I want to clarify that these last three segments should not be understood as the entirety of Asian American history. As the 20th century continued, other Asian groups started to arrive, adding further complexity to the term Asian American Pacific Islander. For the next episode in this series, we're going to look at the PI in AAPI. Histories of Pacific Islanders and Asian Americans are interwoven. But often, the former has been severely overlooked to discuss the latter. The origins of the Pacific diaspora in America are the results of both migration and the forced annexation of their islands. Some groups are immigrants, while others were born American citizens. But what sets Pacific Islander history apart from Asian American history is a tradition of resistance to the destruction of their cultures.
1: We are not American. We are not American it in your heart, say it when you sleep. We are not American. We will die as Hawaiians. We will never be Americans.
0: That's our story. I'm Zach Anderson. Our Stories is presented by Chop Six Alley. For more content like this, visit our website at chopsixalley.com. You can also check out our nonprofit website at chopsixalleyart.org, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chop Alley Art and Chopsticks Alley. If you'd like to sponsor our next podcast, have a topic you'd like for us to discuss, or would like to be a part of the team, send us an email at chopsticksalley at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Zach Anderson. See you next week.